0: Hey, good morning, y'all. I'm really happy to be back. It's been a minute. Um, I have been working overtime to get everything together so I can start my dissertation this summer. I've spoken about this via social media, but I am pretty much, I am done with all my coursework. Um, Just getting everything together so I can start my dissertation, finish this final chapter so that... um, You guys can all refer to me as Dr. Celeste Graham, A.K.A. the Dissertation Slayer, A.K.A. Babies and PhDs. But anyhow, um, I'm back. I previously have kind of talked about how I have decided to almost exclusively dedicate my podcast to discussing the intersectional issue of colorism, Um, and I pretty much have done that this entire season. Aside from the podcasts that I've released that pertain to my Race, Crime, and Justice class and some of the different things I'm going to be exploring. In my dissertation, um, but today we're here, and I want to talk exclusively, again, about colorism, and I want to talk about colorism and black sororities. Um, I am a member of a black sorority, a historical black soror- one of the one of the very, very um, prominent ones, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, founded at Howard University in 1913, um, and I have been a member of this sorority this December. It'll be nine years that I've been a member of this sorority. Um, My time here in the sorority has been complex, at sometimes very rewarding, at sometimes very disappointing, at sometimes um, I have so many feelings. And I, I think that through this podcast, a lot of that will come out about how I regard membership and how I regard the way that Black Greek culture continues to evolve and change, where it was founded, how it was founded, how it started off. Um, but I want to talk about colorism in black sororities today. And the first thing I want to say, and I want to make this very plain is that when we talk about colorism, colorism is an issue of class, it is a stratification, a class stratification issue that we have to talk about and that we have to talk about it through this lens because I think when we do that, it really opens up the dialogue to understanding why it is so harmful and why we need to really be working overtime to dismantle anti-blackness wherever we see it. So while I was really thinking about, I was reading this book, first and foremost, about um, Washington, D.C. society, which is famous for being a society uh, where freed black people went and were able to really, in some instances, because this is definitely not true for the majority of the free black population, but a lot of them, um, some of them, were able to accrue a lot of wealth and capital, and create these really exclusive black circles of people who were either lighter-skinned because they were descended from directly descended from white people, or um, you know multiracial, biracial, fair-skinned people that were creating these circles. And um, this book is fascinating. And this book, I have to tell you the title. Where is it? I actually have it right here. It's called the Paper Bag Principle. Uh, class, Colorism, and Rumor in the Case of Black Washington, D.C. by Audrey Elisa Kerr. So, Professor Kerr is a professor of English at Southern Connecticut State University. Um, this book was published, when was this book published? In 2006. So, there's been a lot of the conversation about colorism and surrounding colorism has really expanded over the past, I would say, like 15, 20 years. When I was growing up I was very aware of what colorism was Because I experienced it almost on a daily Um, But the conversations that we have today Because of so many black women Particularly dark black women Who are forcing this conversation to the forefront And forcing us to really examine How we treat people who are darker uh, And how we segregate interracially by skin tone but yes let's get back to this the so colorism is an issue of class first and foremost okay so let's stop there when I was thinking of this podcast and trying to come up with different ideas for how I wanted to record this and what I wanted need to really say this mantra was like really stuck in my head like not all black people are created equal not all black people are created equal and then I stopped myself I said no I can't say that because all black people are undoubtedly created equal however all black people are not treated equally and furthermore all black people do experience a degree of systemic racism but some of us experience that at higher rates and in more overt ways right um and that is because darker skinned black people do not have any type of proximity to whiteness we don't have anything to shield us when people look at me when they see Celeste Graham, they probably think a bunch of different things. But one thing they're definitely going to think is that's a black woman. I can never escape from that. They may think I'm black from, you know, the islands or black from an African country or black from, you know, a South American country. But I am black. There's no escaping that for me. And so when people look at me, all the positive or negative questions, stereotypes, whatever they have about black people, they, I can't ever escape from that. I can never escape from that. Um, But back to this mantra that I was talking about, not all black people are treated equally. Um, When we talk about colorism as an issue of class, it's really important for us to understand that the very origin of colorism extends from this idea that certain black people are safer, certain black people are more desirable. When I say certain, I'm talking about people with fairer skin tones who are lighter that they're more intelligent, that they are more capable. And so even though Black people systemically have been oppressed for literally hundreds of years, um, when it finally became time to give us some semblance of freedom or some rights, they were not giving it to people who look like me. So here's where this enters. Here's where this conversation is going. Let's give us a roadmap. Let's just give you guys a roadmap real fast. So... As slavery in this country began to kind of wind down in the last 30 or 40 years that it was legally allowed in this country, there were populations of free black people that were starting to sprout up, um, that were starting to invest in universities, that were starting to create, you know, their own capital and financial wealth for themselves and create systems in which they could create basically safe havens and communities where they could exist and thrive. Many of these freed black people were people who were lighter, people who had more access to education or who were just flat out more educated, um, had, you know, just generally speaking, more wealth. Um, sororities are an extension, black sororities. And in particular, I'm talking about Alpha Kappa Alpha, Delta Sigma Theta and Zeta Phi Beta were all founded at Howard University. Um, Alpha Kappa Alpha was founded in 1908 It's the first one The first black, like prominent black sorority That was founded Delta Sigma Theta was founded in 1913 And if I'm not mistaken I believe Zeta Phi Beta was founded in 1920 Um, And these were Sigma Gamma Rho is the other Really big and prominent black sorority But they were founded, if I'm not mistaken I believe they were founded the same campus That Kappa Alpha Psi was founded on In Indiana um, and y'all gotta forgive me. I don't really know a whole lot about other sororities aside from my own, aside from what I've specifically read in regard to colorism um but that being said, sororities first and foremost, functioned only to be an exclusive club, whether they were you know social sororities, whether they were sororities founded to be of service to other people, like registering to vote, advocating for suffrage, they were very exclusive to the point where if you were darker you were not allowed within these sororities because it was seen as like to essentially lower the value of the sorority essentially to make it seem like it was less exclusive um howard functioned and this is this is so true as, as far as like you know the very first years that it was founded Function as a very exclusive school for black students. So well-to-do black families would send their children to Howard University to receive their education. Even to this day, Howard is still a very prominent school with the world, you know, a world-class medical school, world-class law school. Like, it's a great school. Like, let's not pretend here, right? Uh, But that being said, Howard functioned as a very exclusive place where... Only the children of well-to-do families would go to this school and would go to this university. And, and and especially only the well-to-do children who were fair-skinned and lighter-skinned would go to this school and socially flourish in a way that they had access to so much more in comparison to their darker classmates. Um, sororities, and in particular, this is really surprising to me, I have always known the stereotype of AKA and Delta Sigma Theta. And so the stereotype goes something like this and so many members that I know will agree with this is that all the really pretty light-skinned girls pledge AKA and all the really pretty dark-skinned girls pledge Delta Sigma Theta. And that is the stereotype, right? So, I was interested uh I found it really interesting what I was reading through this book that Delta Sigma Theta was actually, like, the members of Delta Sigma Theta were actually historically and traditionally at Howard always the lightest girls on campus. Always the lightest girls on campus. Um, I was really surprised to learn this. A.K.A., apparently, they would—so Delta's like the really, really fair-skinned, light-skinned girls. A.K.A. was apparently the sorority that, ex- that uh, accepted the really pretty brown skin girls, and Zeta Phi Beta was for all the dark-skinned girls, and so this is really interesting to me because this is how the lore went back in the very, you know, the very first couple of decades in which these sororities existed. And this didn't really start to change until the 1960s with the rise of the civil rights movement. And um, this basically this this basically this uh, rejection of wanting to look white and wanting to have proximity to whiteness and wanting to emulate whiteness for the purpose of beauty, for the purpose of success, for the purpose of access. Um, this didn't really start to change until the 1960s. So, up to this point, this is pretty much how it went at Howard. Like, if you were light, you were a Delta. If you were brown, you were AKA. And if you were dark, you were a Zeta. Now, that being said, um, interestingly enough, Zeta was considered to be the sorority that was less exclusive because they allowed dark skinned women into their sorority. Um, I think th- this is like, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow. I was like, this is crazy. I was like, look how much things have changed over the course of years. I think also regionally this plays a difference. Like, I, I pledged here in Texas and um, that is definitely the stereotype that is perpetuated about sororities, black sororities here within this region of the country. So that the light, the pretty light-skinned girls are AKAs, the pretty dark-skinned girls are Deltas. And as far as, like, the stereotypes that surrounds Eta Phi Beta and Sigma Gamma Rho, I really don't hear a whole lot of stereotypes around uh, surrounding them. But... There is, like, this pecking order where it is assumed that the most desirable women are AKAs and Deltas. The lightest women are AKAs, and the darker the darker women are going to be, you know, if they're, if they're considered conventionally and traditionally attractive, they'll probably be Deltas. Um, but back to, like, this idea of sororities and colorism. So D.C., as a city, was a hub for free black people. Most free black people during the years directly preceding slavery, excuse me, yes, preceding, yes, preceding slavery, the years directly after slavery, and in some of the decades, like maybe the 1830s and before, before slavery was officially legally outlawed um, through the 13th Amendment, there was a pretty large population of free black people in D.C. Most of these free black people were lighter by design, right? Um, And this is not to say that I want you to understand, like, the history of what I'm saying. So if we're talking about slavery, people who were lighter, not in every instance, but in some instances probably had a white relative or in some 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 fashion were related to white people. So they were probably granted their freedom by their white relative. So they went to Washington, D.C., established communities. And uh, most of the free black people during this time were either lighter or they were biracial or multiracial, um, either biologically lighter or, I say biologically, just like naturally lighter black person, or they were lighter because they were multiracial or biracial. And somewhere down the line, they had white ancestry. Now, that being said, um, these communities were very insulated. They did not want people who did not fit the image of what they were trying to portray Which is basically what we would call Respectability politics today um, They didn't really want anybody That threatened their status quo Of Their freedom and the rights The rights that they did have Which were not many Even though they were free black people Even though they were lighter skinned black people They still did not have Full you know, inclusive rights Within this country of course So it's really important to understand that as well too That's why I say when we talk about colorism We talk about oppression We have to talk about the spectrum of oppression Like there are people who are totally 100% oppressed There are people who experience varying degrees of oppression And there are people who don't Um, And on this spectrum Free, more fair-skinned black Americans Were experiencing certainly a a significant degree of oppression But not in the same way that darker-skinned Americans were um, and even the free dark-skinned Americans, they're still like they're still within Washington DC, these, these circles of people that have money, these light-skinned black people that have money, that have prestige, they have degrees, that are, you know, have the ability to send their kids to colleges to be educated and send them abroad to experience different things, they are not living the same life as these other free black people, these dark skinned free black people in Washington DC who are basically living in the slums. And what we would essentially call today like you know like the projects basically like the ghetto the hood um they're not the same right and the people who are living the lighter skinned black people who are living within these like really prestigious black communities they want to stay insulated they do not want anything or anybody coming in to sully their name to in any way um jeopardize the varying degrees of freedom that they had in any way, right? So they're they're absolutely they think, you know, there's this idea of being perpetuated that darker skinned black people are dirty, they're less educated. And I mean to a certain degree, this some of this stuff is, you know, them being less educated is because they don't have access. Darker skinned pe- people didn't have access because they're not accepted into these circles to be educated. They're not accepted into certain schools. They're basically, you know, pushed off to the wayside and pushed into this this area where they have really no real visibility. So, as these um, prestigious, talented 10th W.E.B. Du Bois like uh, circles begin to really become more prominent in Washington, D.C., they start setting up all these different societies, these Jack and Jill societies, these uh, sororities and stuff. And of course, in an effort to keep everything exclusive, they're not allowing just anybody into these sororities. There are numerous legends and lore, and 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 people who have actually testified to experiencing paper bag tests that where if you're you know or pencil tests if you can't take a pencil and glide through your hair you know you you're too nappy and too black to be part of the sorority or if you can't pay pass a paper bag test you're too dark to be part of the sorority all these different things um, at one point in time existed um, and it's it's. Theorized, I say theorized, it's reported by most scholars of colorism that this stuff was really prominent up until like the 1960s. Um, even all the fraternities at Howard, the black fraternities that existed there, all of their queens for their pageants were light. And um, there's this actual, this man actually gave this anecdote about how he and his line brothers got in trouble with their chapter uh their chapter their chapter advisors and their faculty advisors because they wanted to pick a girl who was dark-skinned to be the queen and they got mad the advisors got mad because they felt like a woman who was dark-skinned would not accurately represent their fraternity like this is a real thing like this is and so literally there are reports of Dark skinned women just being like, you know, I never even, never even wanted to be a part of, uh, AKA or Delta Sigma Theta. And this is when these were the two sororities that existed, um, because I knew that I could not, there was no possible way I could pass a paper bag test or a pencil test. And I would not be considered for membership because I was just too dark. And, um, there's this whole culture of dark skinned women basically alienating themselves away from sorority culture black sorority culture because they feel like they did not have a place to fit and it's 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 rumored that this is why zeta phi beta was established because they were like no like fuck y'all we'll make we'll make our own goddamn sorority and that's essentially what they did they constitutionally bounded themselves to phi beta sigma and that's what they did and i think that's really interesting because you don't really hear about that a lot you hear about paper bag tests you hear about um aka's only wanting light-skinned members. But as I just said, that come to find out that wasn't technically the case. Uh, and then you hear about Delta Sigma Theta, you know, those are all the pretty dark skin girls. And come to find out, if you, like, the way I look right now, if it was 1923, there's no fucking way I could be a Delta. All the way up until the 1960s, there's no way I would have been able to be a Delta. Even with the GPA I had, even with all the community service I had, even with all the different achievements, the accolades, Nothing, no matter how well known I was, none of that would have prepared me to be a member because they wouldn't have wanted me because of my skin tone. And so in reading this book and kind of like delving further into black sorority culture and this exclusive culture that only really that legitimately started out as a culture of exclusion Um and not the type of exclusion where, you know, like we're exclusive as in, in so much as we want our members to represent a certain standard the standard they wanted their members to represent like this is the truth they wanted them to be light they wanted them to come from well-to-do families and they wanted them to look a certain way and I think about that and I have a really hard time reconciling that with my membership today um I am not financially active in a delta chapter an alumni chapter and I probably never will be ever again um I'm thankful for the way that Delta was able to come into my life and present me with certain opportunities. But I also feel like a lot of the opportunities that I was presented with, and I say presented with quotations in the air, like air quotes, air quotations, was shit I already had, stuff I was already going to do anyways. Um, And I think when we talk about that, I've had this conversation with black sorority members across the spectrum, but mostly with AKAs and with other Deltas. Um, in reconciling with that history, it is a very painful history. And it's a history that makes me really question why I would do that and why I would want to in any way continue to maybe even be a part of it. I think about my daughter. I think about the intake process for a lot of Greek chapters, um, Although, you know, there's this this debate between maid members and paper members and whether or not it really matters or not. um, There is a lot of hazing that goes on underground for various Greek chapters. And that's just the truth. Like, that shit still happens today. It has not gone anywhere. Uh, They banned it back in the 80s and it went underground. And it still happens. It still happens all the time. Um, There are still chapters facing very serious consequences for some of the shit that they've done to people and it's interesting just to kind of talk about that and to really like think about it and to think about what that means for future members and what that means for little girls like my daughter who are going to be in college you know in the next the next 15 or 20 years And whether or not I really want her to subject herself to the same shit that I felt like I was subjected to and to the same stuff that I know so many other women have come to me in confidence and and anonymously and told me they've heard, they've dealt with, so on and so forth. Um, It's really kind of disheartening. But also, I I think that there can be room for change Um, as we become more socially aware as people. As black people, as we seek to create equity and we seek to create communities and ideas and dialogues where we're able to fully express what liberation looks like for us, I am hopeful that um, things have changed and things will continue to change. I thought it was really interesting where it talked about when the rise of the civil rights movement is when this paper bag test, pencil test this stuff started to really like fall off to the wayside and people started really like looking like, you know what? That shit doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Um, if we're going to, as black people, first and foremost, if we're going to get rid of white supremacy, if we're going to dismantle white supremacy, it is absolutely critical that we also dismantle colorism. We cannot talk about how we hate white supremacy and then within our own communities, we hate people who are black or who are dark. Or we, we belittle them. We don't give them a platform to express their feelings, to express the various oppressions they face within our own race. We cannot do that. Um, it's you know, it's, At that point, it's pretty much counterproductive. It's like, okay, so we want to get rid of white supremacy so we can all be free and be black. But not too black. Just black enough. But that shit doesn't even sound right. It doesn't even sound okay. A few more things I want to say. Uh, I think I'm getting closer to my 30-minute mark. But, um, you know, sororities, the Talented Tenth, all these things have historically and traditionally functioned as tools of black elitism designed to exclude certain people and designed to essentially... Shield certain groups of black people while not extending that same grace to other groups of black people. Um, when we talk about black people, we really have to discuss the racial definition of what it means to be black. In this country, there's you know there's there have been pretty plenty of legal definitions for what it means to be black. The most prominent one that so many people are familiar with is the one drop rule, which if you have one drop of black blood that makes you black. However, when we talk about this, a lot of what makes a person black, and I think what really, when I say makes a person black, I want to be clear about what I mean by that. A lot of what black people experience in being black comes from the outside perception of what you look like. So your phenotype. So that being said, if Everybody with just one drop of black blood is black. That qualifies a whole lot more people to be considered black than what we would traditionally and historically think. Right. So you can literally there have been plenty of legal cases with people like, you know, finding out that like like, for instance, this, this woman in Louisiana in the 1980s grew up her entire life thinking she was a white woman. Went to go get, I think, her license renewed or her passport or something and found out that she's actually black. And she was like, well, I've lived my entire life as a white person. And she was like, y'all, this is so fucking ridiculous. She was like a 26th or a 32nd black. Like she was like, she had a black ancestor literally like eight generations removed from her. And so she's just now finding this information out. And they're like, well, no, you can't change your racial your racial classification in the state of Louisiana because by law, if you have one drop of black blood and you you were black. And this is interesting because what this does is that it does create a tier in blackness in which certain black people, if you like, you know, if you have one drop of black blood but you look like a white woman, you're not experiencing the same thing that I'm experiencing. You're not experiencing the same thing that you're, you know your friend, your cousin, who's a couple shades darker than you is experiencing. You are not You are not perceived in the world the same way. Because if you weren't to tell anybody that you have one drop of black blood and you, nobody knows you're black, you look like a white person. Or you look like another ethnicity, another nationality, another race. So that being said, I think it's really important for us to continue to have that conversation when we talk about blackness in the different ways that black people experience blackness. It is not... Um, like I said, I'm going to continue to say this, not all black people are treated the same, okay? They're not. Um, and that is because of colorism, which is, you know, racism's baby, which is a part of this, this this systemic and pervasive white supremacist culture that America is steeped into. I think when we talk about sororities, um, I recall... I don't want to say too much. Gosh, I recall like um, on my line, on my on my my line of line sisters, like we're pretty diverse. There's like a spectrum of us. There's some of us that are. Really light. There are some of us that are brown, and there are some of us that are, you know, dark, and that's just the way that it is. Which is not uncommon to see, especially on a Delta line, um, and even AKA lines. Now, most AKA lines I see are are pretty diverse in shade and in hue. Like I don't really see that a lot anymore. But this is also two thousand twenty one. These sororities are over a hundred years old now. Shit is obviously and absolutely changed since their inception, um, but those stereotypes still persist. They're still, like, you know, I've definitely heard people say, like, it can't be adults Delta line if they don't have, you know, no bad at no bad, like, fine-ass dark-skinned girls on there. It can't be adults Delta line. And so I'm like, those types of things and those thoughts when they're perpetuated is really interesting to me because, again, it further cements those stereotypes about who seeks membership where and who should feel a sense of belonging where and so on and so forth. Um, I want to... Get to a place where we can wrap up. So I'm going to leave you guys with some closing thoughts. Um, black Greek culture, when we talk about black sororities, is a very sensitive topic with a lot of people with you know having these like die hard feelings of like i'm not gonna let anybody talk bad about my sorority i'm not gonna let anybody and you know this is the thing is like i absolutely understand like your conviction to like not let anybody paint you on a bad light but also like the truth is the truth like if this is what was happening and this is how we were all created and this is how the inception of these groups came to be that needs to be discussed within a broader lens about what's happening today how we address colorism and how we rectify some of the wrongdoings of our past We cannot collectively move forward if we don't acknowledge that at one point in time, our sororities were extremely elitist, extremely exclusive and exclusionary. I say exclusive. Let's say exclusionary. because That's really what the fuck was going on. Um, And we have to rectify, like, what does our future look like? How are we being inclusive to all women? How are we creating membership practices where we're not belittling women, we're not hazing them, we're not driving them to the point of sleep deprivation and fucking anxiety and mental breakdowns? What are we doing to better ourselves? And that's what I'm going to leave you with. Um, And that, in any capacity, I feel like if I continue on with being an active member of my sorority, unless I see these open and active dialogues, I'm not entirely sure that that I really care or really want to even be included. Or that I want my daughter to be included. I joke all the time about my daughter like she's going to be, you know, my legacy. But um, some of the shit I've seen, if somebody did that to my daughter, I'm suing you niggas. And I'm beating y'all's ass. So I'll leave y'all with that. And have a great night, you know?